Chapter 15, Part 2 of A Magician Among the Spirits by Harry Houdini. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15, Part 2 Magicians as Detectors of Fraud. One of the demonstrations presented by Alexis to mystify Houdin was the reading from a book by the seer several pages in advance of a page designated by the person holding the book at that time. There does not seem to be any really authentic details reported regarding the exact performance of this man, Alexis, Consequently, much must of necessity be left to conjecture and a knowledge of the orthodox methods for doing such things. Such information as there is available seems to have passed through several hands and in all probability was first presented to the public through a spiritualistic publication. However, the particular effect referred to is neither new nor strange, but has always been a feature in second-sight acts and with clairvoyance. The reading of a book from memory is quite possible to persons of abnormal mind or special training in co-relative memorizing, a very clever system with surprising possibilities. There are many cases on record of persons who, having read a book once, could repeat every word and even tell where the punctuation was. The ability to recite entire chapters or parts of them is much more common and is not difficult for trained minds such as are possessed by members of theatrical stock companies, who are oftentimes obliged to commit to memory simultaneously three or four plays, and this too while on the road. In order to be prepared to play one part in the afternoon and an entirely different one the same night, stock actors frequently have to do some marvelous memorization work on short notice. It is not an exception, but the rule. They get long parts with from 50 to 150 sides, each side containing from 1 to 10 speeches. The foster mother's speech in common clay is over three pages, and the duchess's in the first act of Oscar Wilde's Lady Wildmere's Fan is about four pages. The well-known actress, Miss Beatrice Morland, told me that she memorized them both in an hour and was almost letter-perfect. The actor's rule for memorizing parts is to take ten pages first, and when they have been committed to memory, take ten more. If such feats can be done as the result of training, how easy it must be for an abnormal mind to memorize a book. There comes to my mind a phenomenal memory feat by a blind slave boy called Blind Tom. He would listen while a composer played an original composition. As soon as the composer finished, Tom seated himself at the piano and reproduced the entire piece with all the composer's delicacy of shading and technique. There is a case on record of a memory performance, I think, in Rousseau's time, where a poet read a piece of poetry, 
a long monody, to the king. At its conclusion, the king said, Why, that is quite an old story. I have heard it before. As a matter of fact, the man who related it to me is in my palace now. I will send for him and have him recite it for you. He spoke to a servant who left the room and returned in a few minutes with the memory man who stood in the center of the room and recited the entire poem. It appears that the king, wishing to mystify the poet, had the memory man hidden in a closet where he could hear the poem read. Inaudi, a Frenchman, has given performances both in America and Europe in which he looks at a blackboard covered with figures written by a committee, then turns around and immediately tells correctly every figure on the board and its position, adds, subtracts, and multiplies them with lightning-like rapidity, and all without looking at the board a second time. He makes no claim to psychic or clairvoyant powers, but simply explains his wonderful performance as being the result of a photographic memory. I might repeat such instances indefinitely, but I think I have given enough to substantiate my claim of precedence for God's natural laws and their marvelous, even incomprehensible working over any so-called supernatural endowment of a class of people so thoroughly disqualified by all known laws of moral sociology, as many professional mediums are admitted to be by their most ardent supporters. Even such an eminent mystifier as Robert Houdin can misjudge when it comes to fathoming the so-called manifestations of the professional medium. As I have explained in The Unmasking of Robert Houdin, page 291, he makes two flagrant errors in attempting to explain the Davenport brothers' trick. First, he claims that by dint of special practice on the part of the mediums, the thumb is made to lie flat in the hand when the whole assumes a cylindrical form of scarcely greater diameter than the wrist. Secondly, he declares that the Davenport brothers possessed the power of seeing in the dark as the result of practice or training. Releasing myself from fastenings of all sorts, from ropes to straitjackets, has been my profession for over 35 years. Therefore, I am in a position to positively contradict Houdin's first statement. I have met thousands of persons who claimed that the rope trick, as well as the handcuff trick, was accomplished by folding the hand together or by making the wrist larger than the hand. But I have never met the man or woman who could make the hand smaller than the wrist. I have even gone so far as to have iron bands made to press my hands together, hoping to make them smaller than my wrists eventually, but it was no use. Even if the thumbs were cut away, I believe it would be impossible to slip a rope that is properly bound around the wrist. 
Furthermore, I know that Houdin was wrong in regard to the Davenports because of what Ira Erastus Davenport himself told me. Equally preposterous is the gift of seeing in the dark with which Houdin endowed the Davenports. Professor Hoffman defends Houdin by citing instances of prisoners who have been confined in a dungeon for an indefinite period and had learned to see in the dark. Ira Erastus Davenport laughed at the idea, and Morell, who was confined in a dungeon for a number of years, told me that all the years he had spent in darkness did not accustom his eyesight at all and that to have seen an article plainly he would have been forced to hold it close to his eyes, and even then would have had to stretch his imagination. Bagley, an investigator, a member of the Society for Psychical Research, London, England, emphatically records that he believes the Zanzigs are genuine telepathists, and my friend, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, though he says that Zanzig has given proof numerous times that he works with a code, nevertheless has stated in writing that he believed the Zanzigs to be genuine. I want to go on record that the Zanzigs never impressed me as being anything but clever, silent, and signal codists. Zanzig has admitted freely to members of the Society of American Magicians, of which he is a member, that they were not telepathists, but, as we term it, second-sight artists. They simply have a wonderful code which the public cannot detect. It is interesting to know that after Mrs. Zanzig's death, Zanzig took a streetcar conductor from Philadelphia and broke him in to do the act. This young man soon quit his teacher, married, and began presenting the act with his wife. Then Zanzig took young David Bamberg, an intelligent son of Theodore Bamberg, one of our well-known magicians. The boy proved exceptionally clever, but on account of unexpected circumstances he left and went abroad. Zanzig came to me for an assistant, and I introduced him to an actress. He said he would guarantee to teach her the code inside of a month, but they never came to an agreement on financial matters. Zanzig has now married again, this time a schoolteacher, and they are doing a very clever performance. In passing, I would note that in 1906 or 1907, I engaged Zanzig to go with my show. I had ample opportunity to watch his system and codes. They are swift, sure, and silent. And I must give him credit for being expertly adept in his chosen line of mystery. But I have his personal word given before a witness that telepathy does not enter into it. Charles Moret has a code for second sight, which is very simple and can be taught to anyone in 30 minutes. He has given me the secret. He gave this code to a banker who performed it with his sister, and Moret, although he had taught the signals, could not follow or detect them once they began to work smoothly. 
Of course, he knew what they were doing, but simply could not follow them. Regarding the possibility of using codes and cues before others without being detected, I can say positively that it is not only possible, but simple and practical. I had a fox terrier by the name of Bobby that I trained to pick up cards by a cue. On May 31, 1918, I performed with this dog before the Society of American Magicians, and I do not believe that there was one in the audience who detected my silent cue. I spoke about this to a number of expert professionals who thought, to all intents and purposes, that Bobby was listening to my speech, whereas I was silently cueing him all the time. I do not wish to expose the silent cue, as I know that the great dog trainers of the world use it, and it would not be fair to them to make it public. I was able to give Bobby his silent cue in any room, or even a newspaper office, and the spectators could watch me closely all the time because I never made a move they could see or a sound they could hear. It is common to train other animals in a similar way. During one of my tours in Germany, I saw a horse called Kluge Hans that was able to spell, add, subtract, pick out cards, and with his feet, make one tap for yes and two taps for no. Kluge Hans fooled the professors for a long time, but finally it came out that he got his cues from the trainer's assistant. It is not generally known that, owing to the position of his eyes, a horse can look backwards to a certain degree, and the investigators did not notice the assistant who stood just back of the horse's head. At one time, William Eglinton, an English medium, was undoubtedly considered by spiritualists the most powerful professional psychic, not only in England, but throughout a greater part of Europe. In 1876, he held the palm as a successor to Slade in slate-writing tricks. He was a strong card for the cause and was extolled and lauded to the skies by the spiritualistic press. He produced varied phenomena in addition to his slate-writing effects, such as the movement of articles, production of spirit lights, and materialization. The spiritualists have told that he was so skillful that several practiced conjurers, as well as many investigators, were at a loss to detect or account for his methods. That may have been so. Half a century ago, conjurers were not up on spiritualism as they are today, and besides, it must be conceded that even conjurers are not immune to being deceived. Nevertheless, there were conjurers and lay investigators fully qualified to discover and expose his frauds. In 1876, while in his prime as a medium, he was exposed in the materialization of an Arab. This Arab's flowing beard and draperies were very familiar to English spiritualists, and as proof of the actual materialization, sitters were permitted to cut fragments from the beard and robes. 
Archdeacon Coley, an interested member of a circle of sitters, suspecting fraud, secured some clippings, and a few days later, when opportunity offered, he found in Eglinton's portmanteau a false beard and a quantity of muslin to which the detached relics perfectly corresponded. He was also exposed several other times, but this did not prevent the spiritualist paper, Light, from publishing in October 1886 a mass of testimony given by more than a hundred observers including persons of high culture and social standing, to show that the phenomena at his seances were not due to any deliberate action on the part of the medium, but to conclusively establish the existence of some objective, intelligent force capable of acting externally to the medium and in contravention of the recognized laws of matter. The publication of such statements inspired Professor H. Carville Lewis to visit Eglinton for the purpose of investigation, and arrangements were made for him to have a first sitting in November, just a month after the extravagant statement in light. Aware of the frailty of memory, Professor Lewis made notes during the seance, and wrote out his deductions and conclusions immediately after. He discovered at an early stage that close scrutiny did not produce an atmosphere sufficiently wholesome for desired results. While his attention was concentrated on the medium, the objective intelligent force seemed totally inoperative. But whenever he turned his attention from the medium and apparently became absorbed in making notes, the intelligent force became active instanter. Under the observation of Professor Lewis, Eglinton failed utterly at times and others simply declined to work when conditions were against him. Professor Lewis quotes him as claiming that he had converted Keller to spiritualism, but refutes such a claim in the following words. So far is this from being the case that Mr. Keller, whom I know personally, is nightly offering in America 20 pounds to anyone who will produce spiritualistic phenomena that he cannot imitate by conjuring. The facts are that Keller had a sitting with Eglinton in Calcutta to see if he could reproduce his effects by natural means. His mind was unbiased, and failing to detect Eglinton's method, he remarked, If my senses are to be relied on, the writing is in no way the result of trickery or sleight of hand. But note the qualification in his remark if my senses are to be relied upon. Evidently, he had his misgivings then, and he must have worked out the problem soon after, for two years later, as Professor Lewis told, he was producing the effect in America, and not long after performed both the Slade and Eglinton slate tricks before the Sabert Commission in Philadelphia to its complete amazement. It was not strange that Keller did not detect Eglinton's method instantly, 
nor is it strange that he acknowledged that he was baffled. No magician is immune from being deceived, and it is no way beneath the magician's dignity or demeaning to professional reputation to openly admit that he cannot always account for what he thinks he sees. Ernst Bosch, of the famous Bosch family, who made the major apparatus for the magicians of the world, told me that he made hundreds of wireless tables before wireless was so well known under the name of the bewitched table. He was a great illusion inventor and builder with a wonderful knowledge, but in all his experience and contact with mediums, he had never seen anything which would make him believe in spiritualism. Neither has Francis J. Martinka, who traveled around the world with Hasselmeyer, the magician, and who has sold magical apparatus in New York City for over 40 years. I have the following letter from him in regard to spirit communication. 146 East 54th Street, New York City, March 23, 1921. Dear Mr. Houdini, In answer to your question if I believe in spiritualism or the possibility of the return to this earth after death, how can I believe in such a thing as spiritualism when for more than two score years, as the prominent magical dealer and manufacturer of mysterious effects, I have supplied almost every known and thousands of unknown tricks or apparatus to the great majority of magicians, and indirectly to well-known mediums, one instance you may remember, owing to the hullabaloo it raised at the time, where I sold luminous paint to Hear Ward Carrington, at the exact time when he was manager of the celebrated medium E. Palladino, who had baffled the scientists of the world. Also to all the managers of magician supply houses in existence. No, I must say positively, I do not believe in spiritualism, and it has always amused me to see how easy it is to deceive the human beings who seek solace for their grief, or those who delve into the mysteries of which they know nothing. In the forty years' experience, I have never seen anything that could convince me that such a thing as spiritualism existed and to show you that I wish my letter to be positively authentic, have two friends sign as witnesses. Regards, sincerely yours, signed Francis J. Martinka. Witnesses, signed Jean A. Leroy, 133 3rd Avenue. Signed Billy O'Connor, Magicians Club, London. Another who finds nothing but gross fraud in spiritualism after sixty years of study is A. M. Wilson, M.D., of Kansas City, Missouri, editor and publisher of The Sphinx. He wrote me as follows. 1007 Main Street, Kansas City, Missouri. My dear Houdini, 
For almost 61 years, I have been witnessing and investigating spiritualism and spiritism as propagated by mediums through their so-called communications with the dead. Up to this time, I have not met a medium, celebrated or obscure, that was not a gross fraud, nor seen a manifestation that was not trickery and that could not be duplicated by any expert magician, and that without the conditions and restrictions demanded by the mediums or explained by perfectly natural mental or physical methods. Sure, there are certain mental and psychic phenomena peculiar to a few persons who use their special gift to delude believers, as well as other credulous persons, with the belief that their work is supernatural. But even these phenomena can be analyzed and explained by any competent psychologist. The thing that first aroused my suspicion and disbelief and started me to thinking and investigating was, why could not the dear departed communicate direct with their relatives and friends? Why talk or rap or write or materialize through a medium, the majority of whom are ignorant men and women, though shrewd and cunning? And if through a medium, why should the medium need a control, especially of an old Indian chief or prattling Indian maiden? Why a control at all? True, there are a few well-educated, intelligent, and refined mediums in the business, and which advantage makes them the more dangerous, but nonetheless fraudulent, than their more ignorant confrères. I repeat that from my first seance in Aurora, Indiana, February 1863, until this date of 1923, I have never met a medium that was not a fraud or seen a manifestation of any kind or character that was not fraudulent. In other words, was a more or less crude or skillful magical performance by a clever trickster or tricksteress. Signed, A. M. Wilson, M. D., Editor, The Sphinx. End of Chapter 15